Welcome to Building the Future, Freedom, Prosperity, and Foreign Policy, a podcast series focused on updating the United States soft power playbook to meet the hopes and aspirations of developing countries because it's in America's interest to do so. I'm Dan Rundy, Senior Vice President at CSIS. There are a lot of global challenges out there, so let's get started. I'm joined today by Pablo Maldonado, COO of Creative Associates International. Pablo recently led a comprehensive study into the factors driving migration from the Northern Triangle. Based on the study, Creative Associates International released the report, Why Migrants Risk It All, which we will discuss today. Pablo, thanks for taking the time to join us. My pleasure, Dan. Happy to share some insights on this important topic. It's it's always nice to see you, and uh, I'm such a big fan of Creative Associates and the Creative Associates family, so I really appreciate you coming over. So tell us, why did Creative Associates take this on? Well, unveiling original research studies is is not something that we do uh, every day, Um, but uh, at the same time, it's not really uncommon for us to do deep dives on issues that are uh, of a national pol- foreign policy interest uh, or intractable problems that require a fresh take. You know, I just think, Pablo, I, I think that you guys have been working on the Northern Triangle on, on issues around migration and gangs for a long time. I suspect you brought a lot of perspective and a lot of experience to this work. Well, indeed, we have uh, deep roots in Central America. We've been active uh, in the Northern Triangle uh, for about 30 years, since before the signing of the peace accords. The problem of migration is really very real to us. But uh, importantly, we bring uh, to this uh, phenomena a really optimistic take. Uh, We definitely believe that migration uh, can be prevented. We believe that migration will probably be um, most effective if prevented where migration originates. And perhaps more importantly is uh, uh, sort of our optimistic take. If we were to get this right, I think that we would be uh, serving the needs of many uh, that are in, in dire needs of uh, our attention and our assistance. I agree with that. I believe that the magic number I've seen is $8,000. What I've seen is that when a country reach about, reaches about $8,000 per capita, people stop, have less incentive to migrate. And so we don't have a migration problem from countries such as Panama or Costa Rica because they're about above $8,000 per capita. Mexico reached $8,000 per capita in 2005, and today we have net migration. There are more people coming back from who are Mexican descent back to Mexico than people from Mexico going to the United States. In countries like Guatemala, Honduras, and El Salvador that have between $2,500 and $4,000 per capita, we're going to have lots of people migrating. And we also, as you know, because you guys do all this work on with young people, there's an enormous youth bulge in the, in the region. So there's lots of young people. And it seems to me that when you've got young people, they've got energy and they're going to use it for good or they're going to do something less constructive with it, like joining a gang, or they're going to migrate. Those seem to me, those are the three options for youthful energy, it strikes me. And I know that you guys have been working on these issues for a long time. You know, what shocked me about this study, it's called the, the title Saliando Adelante, which is why migrants risk it all. You know, there were a series of takeaways from the study that really called my attention, really got a lot of attention from me. I just think it's... Uh, really quite a well-done study. Talk about some of the things that you found that really were were surprising to you or things that are important to underline. 
Let me uh, try to categorize um, our salient findings in two general buckets. One bucket is sort of a description of the, of the, of the conditions and the environment in which migration uh, occurs. And the other big picture is the specific reasons uh, that are driving uh, folks to uh, actually make the decision to migrate. It's kind of the behavioral side of it. At the sort of a higher level, which is of particular importance to um, uh, donors and policymakers, we find uh, a couple of things that are really interesting in our opinion. The first one is we uncovered that the problem is highly focalized. It's almost like the 80-20 rule taken to an extreme. We've uncovered that uh, 7% of the municipalities account for 60% of the migration. So if we really want to move the, the migration needle, we certainly know where to go. We've uncovered that uh, the, the problem is mostly uh, urban and it concerns uh, the young populations, as you suggested. Uh, so uh, here again, uh, we are getting data that's highly su suggestive as to who we are to target. Uh, we've uncovered that some similarities uh, uh, among countries emerge and some uh, discrepancies emerge. But what we uncovered is that the, the differences between uh, the municipalities in one country are significant, which are suggestive of the real need to have good diagnostics at the local um, level if we're uh, going to have uh, effective programming. And the last thing still at, at kind of this higher level is that the economies in which uh, migration is taking place are really vulnerable economies. And uh, one has to question if the architecture of the, of the economies, as we understand them, has really the capacity uh, and the potential to uh, address the problem at the scale and with the speed uh, in which we think uh, that the situation so demands. So, so what you're saying is, is there's a universe of places where most of the migration is happening and there's a series of problems in these communities that if we were to address those problems in those communities, that that would go a long way to addressing many of the root causes of the vast majority of the migration coming from the Northern Triangle? Uh, absolutely. And, and I think that a way of complementing uh, that general take is if we were to actually uh, understand precisely what is driving uh, migration. And here's uh, kind of uh, another set of, of findings. The first one, and it's not a discovery, but indeed is, I think, a very important conclusion, is that although many factors contribute to the ultimate decision to migrate, ultimately the decision is economic. It's mostly uh, folks, uh, we hear it over and over, folks lacking opportunity, folks lacking employment, folks uh, being underemployed, folks employed in informal economies and lacking skills. And ultimately, this results in folks' inability to make ends meet. We've explored the issue of income in some level of detail. And I go back to your earlier comment about 8,000. Uh, we've drawn sort of a, a line a, within a spectrum. And folks that are uh, making between uh, $400 and $200 uh, per household a month, uh, we can almost say that it's a trigger for migration. We can bet money that they're going to migrate, that that's oh, wow. the consideration. That's the profile. How, however, importantly, is if we go to uh, the next level up and we go to the interval 400 to 600, intention to migrate dips dramatically. It drops dramatically. And similarly, if we were to look at the bracket 200 and below, which would suggest extreme poverty, 
migration dips again, which is counterintuitive, and, and suggests that migration in order to, uh, to occur requires assets. You need resources, you need some aspirations, you need to hope, you hope you're going somewhere. And if you're so grindingly poor, you're just, you're, you're just trying to make ends meet, that that's not really the profile of folks that are leaving. It's mm -hmm. the folks who've got a little bit more money, a little bit more hope, a little bit more assets and a little bit more network. Aspirations. And a little more aspirations. I, I'm really taken with your, your case studies. You have a woman named Isabel in Guatemala who you, you describe here in the, in the case study saying she hasn't migrated but intends to. She's 20 years old. She's unemployed. And she wants to become a doctor. And so this is a, exactly this kind of a profile. This is a person yeah. who's obviously got some dreams, got some hope got some aspirations, mm. and potentially has got the ability to actually operationalize them, if mm. we can put it that way, yeah. right? I think that's really interesting that if you can basically bet money that if they're in a certain 200 to 400 range. They tend not to have the aspiration to migrate. But 400 to 600, yes. And 400 so 600 would be almost below the, the poverty line. Above 600, the intention to migrate dips. So we're kind so of- So 400 to 600 a month. Mm -hmm. Okay, so it just seems to me, I mean, well, I spoke to a former finance minister in a Central American country, Dr. Juan Jose Dabub, who is the former finance yeah. minister of El Salvador. When he was finance minister of El Salvador, El Salvador became investment grade. They dropped poverty. There was economic growth, attracted a lot of foreign investment. And I said, Dr. Dabub, and he's a senior advisor here at CSS, what's it take how do we double the GNP per capita? How long would it take? And he said, well, there's a series of sort of policy planets that would need to align. But he thinks it's about a 10 or a year or so exercise. I mean, we need to make it. We want to deal with these root causes. This is sort of a 10-year focused exercise at least. Mm -hmm. And I mean, with all these young people, I mean, these are growing countries. Guatemala is still growing. I mean, there's an enormous youth bulge in these countries. There's swelling ranks of young people. They either need to find a job in their country or they're going to be involved in not so great activities like gangs, or they're going to move. That's mm. basically, those Absolutely. are the three options, yeah. right? Right. Yeah. So a couple of comments. First, I wonder if we have 10 years. Maybe we right. don't have 10 right. years. We have right. the luxury yeah. of 10 years. Correct. And then the, yeah, that's there, a good there, question. There, there is a need for a kind right of now. creative programming. What is that we can do now? And perhaps we can get into that. Yeah. One thing that I want to say, go back, going back to the story that you referenced, one of the, the sort of another discovery of our study is that the motivation for migration uh, is different about the adult population uh, than it is for the young population, right? And uh, one of the things that makes it different is that the adult uh, population is really concerned with income. It's about income. It's, right. about, it's mainly about economic opportunity. Correct. For the young, it's not exactly income. It's the sense of opportunity. Like this woman. Money doesn't really fully take care of the problem. It's the sense of a vision for life. I want to be a doctor. I want to be something for young men. And it comes vividly in the data. It's indirectly something similar to what's happening with ISIS. I need to be able to have a plan for getting married, having a, I, I, a, you a, know, a I, future. And you don't take care of the young with just money. They need a job. You know, I think there's a marriage. If you're in your 20s, whether it's in the United States or anywhere else in the world, there's a marriage market. Mm -hmm. And if you're a guy, and we talk a lot about the importance of gender and Creative Associates has done a lot mm -hmm. of work working on women's mm -hmm. economic empowerment. You guys were early to this mm -hmm. years ago. But I actually think sometimes we forget about the guy in mm -hmm. the equation. Mm -hmm. And so I think a lot of guys, men, young men, if they are not marriageable material – 
that's a really dangerous thing, whether it's in Central America or whether it's in the Middle East or whether it's in Africa mm. or whether it's in rural America. It's a dangerous combination. You can either lead to despair, lead to migration, lead to making bad choices, whether it's other other sorts of choices. This is a really important mm. issue, and that's, right. a, that's a really important finding. Right, which which explains uh, sort of the, the motivations why men need uh, that sense of, of uh, vision for the future and maybe perversely uh, the reason why they join gangs. Importantly, we've discovered, a little bit to our surprise, that the motivation for women to migrate is not very different than the motivations for men. However, the motivations of adult women is very different from the motivations of young women. Mm. This all points to, uh, you know, how then are we going to kind of have to weave the tapestry to provide the solutions that the situation demands. Uh, One more thing that I wanted to give you, uh, another piece of information regarding our finding, a second factor uh, that drives uh, migration. And I have to say, contrary to our earlier beliefs, it's a distant second. And this is the issue of uh, victimization. And and there there are um, many forms of uh, victimization that are actually triggering uh, migration. Our finding, however, is that it's not really homicides and it's it's really more a variety of factors that are causing folks to migrate, uh, to include uh, c- common robbers, to include extortion. So sometimes, and, and creative implements uh, a, a great yeah. deal of crime, crime and violence prevention programs. Uh, we're focused ex- strictly on on uh, homicides, and we need to broaden our horizon in that regard. The third so it's element, not, so yeah. it's not murderers that they're worried about. They're worried about being robbed. They're worried about if they got a small business being extorted. Absolutely. But isn't it also? I also thought a lot of this was about if I'm a mom. So I look when I I got interested in this about five years ago because I saw those kids going on that train for a thousand miles, and they're my, they're my kids' age. And you've met my children, Pablo. Mm. Some of those kids look like my children. And I think to myself, what would it take for me to put my kid on a train by himself for a thousand miles? Something really extreme and dramatic must be going on in these places. And I think one of the things is this issue of young men being forced recruited into gangs. Isn't that also part of it? uh, Absolutely. Absolutely. And I think it's more that uh, than uh, what we've experienced, um, or at least the theory that we have going in, uh, that it was uh, really more an issue of family reunification that was driving the decision to migrate. And uh, we have to say that the data simply does not support that. We thought that having relatives in the United States was a factor. We have to say the data does not support that. However, when we look at uh, folks receiving actively receiving remittances, that is an, an indicator that correlates strongly with the propensity to migrate. So I'm looking at this other case study you have here of Luis and Alejandro, and they're from Honduras, and they're leaving. They joined a caravan heading north from San Pedro Sula with their five-year-old son, turned back in Mexico after facing violence and illness, and they left mainly for violence and extortion, low-wage informal work, and want their children to grow up in a safe community with better opportunities. Mm-hmm. Exactly. So it's about the kid. Exactly. We want to see a change in combating crime. We don't feel safe when we go to work, says Louisa. That's pretty tough. Exceedingly tough. But uh, if there's one point that uh, that we want to make is uh, that victimization certainly belongs in the universe of factors that are actually forcing folks to migrate. However, at the end of the day, 
it's mostly about economics. I'm going to say a ratio three to one to four to one. Oh, mighty. That's it's amazing. What? Let me, here's another example. Alberto, age 22, from El Salvador, migrated to the U.S. in 2016, was apprehended by immigration authorities and deported. His family's living in the U.S. Crime and violence in his neighborhood and underemployment were his primary reasons for migrating. What he really wants is a steady job and better future for his family. My greatest inspiration was my daughter and sister because what I wanted most is for them both to have a better life, said Alberto. Mm -hmm. He said it well. He said it well. What what should policymakers be doing with this? I mean, I, I was very taken with this study, mm -hmm. and I think it's really well done. I think it's an important study. How should policymakers be thinking about this? And how should the general public be thinking about mm -hmm. this? So let me give you maybe uh, two or three thoughts about that. The first one uh, concerns truly understanding the motivation of our, of our partners. And here I want to say, to what degree host country governments really have the inherent motivation to curb migration? This is almost by definition po populations that are underserved, that are for all intents and purposes kind of practical problems uh, to uh, the government. And if they were to be on this side of the border, they become a solution to some degree. So one needs to understand to what degree is the host country government really motivated to curb migration. And here's something that we've uncovered. Migration is being used um, as a referendum on the effectiveness of uh, the uh, administration. Of the political administration. Uh, of the local. The, the gobierno de turno, the, the, whatever the, the government that that's in charge at the moment. So it, it's kind of interesting that for different reasons, they have a motivation to address migration. So the situation here is the United States has its own needs. Local governments have a different set of needs, but these needs at some point uh, serendipitously have a point of convergence. And we're both interested in the same end goal. Uh, so. First recommendation is uh, recreate the narrative and uh, come up with a win-win strategy, if you will. I think it's to totally in the cards. And ultimately, the people that uh, often are left out of the, the dialogue would benefit immensely out of that. Second uh, recommendation is, uh, as I've been saying all along, is we must focus on the economic factors. As a point of departure, there are many ways of slice that one. Uh, but uh, ultimately, we're looking more about uh, household economics, if you will, than kind of broader, bigger um, macroeconomics. Econo macro and I want to say that another uh, sort of tangential finding is that uh, many of the good programs that we see in action must be continued, but for the most part are, are missing the geographies. And they, they may be in the wrong places. And, and actually pursuing different good outcomes, but it's a different, uh, different intent. The third sort of recommendation that I would give is uh, to address uh, migration head-on, uh, designing highly focalized uh, programs that look at specific uh, geographies and have specific populations in mind, actually touching on the specific factors that are driving mi migration. And here's the challenge is, is, is certainly complicated, but it's not complex. It's not like we don't know what needs doing. It's not that we don't know where to go. It's not that we don't know what the problems that need addressing and attention are. But at the same time, it's very textured. It's layered. It's hard to think 
that one solution will apply across the board. So we go back to the importance of good local diagnostics and responsive programming. And I think for the most part, uh, current programs are missing the uh, ge geographies and are missing the targets. So what we're doing in San Pedro Sula ought to be different than another part of, say, El Salvador, a different part of Guatemala, the Western Highlands of Guatemala. Correct. There are municipalities that are economically, they're thriving economically. There are municipalities that are thriving demographically, and there, there are municipalities that are depressed. So, you know, each municipality kind of requires a different treatment, a different solution. The other thing I, I was curious about is there's often been some talk about we need to create a Plan Colombia for Central America. Let me try something out on you, which is, I would argue this is Dan's cynical view of things, but 20 years ago, Plan Colombia came about because I would argue that if you were in the elite in Colombia and you sent your kid to Harvard Business School, the country brand of Colombia was so bad that you, you were in the elite, had to spend a lot of time explaining Colombia to people outside the country. Or if you were a legitimate business in Colombia and you wanted to get investors, the level of, of risk was so high. But I also think that if you were wealthy in Colombia and you had a weekend house, over time you had just added sort of a bulletproof car or you added an additional uh, bodyguard that you had workarounds to the problems in Colombia and you sort of didn't impact you. But then things started to impact you. You had a family member experience violence and you may not actually have been able to get to your weekend house in the countryside. So between country risk the cost, that the costs to the elites were so high that there was a willingness to make major changes. I just wonder if in these three countries, the Northern Triangle, that whether the elites sort of are kind of sharing in the burden, if I can describe it that way, that there's a, you know, some of these countries have some of the lowest tax collections in the world. I mean, Guatemala, I've seen numbers of eight, nine or 10 percent per capita. I think everything you're saying, I agree mm. with, but I think there's a, you know, because one of the questions has always been, where where is the political will for these sorts of changes? I hope that they're able to spend the political capital or create the political capital or political willingness to make the kind of changes that you're describing. And I also think the recommendations and conclusions in your report are really good. Focus on high migration areas, expand economic programs, meet, meet youth's urgent needs, address the victimization spectrum. I think this report, Saliendo Adelante, is really well done and reflects your years of work on these issues and your deep ties to the countries. And Creative Associates, very sophisticated experience working on all of these issues, whether it's economic growth or it's gangs or young people or uh, women and girls or anti-crime work. You guys have been working on these issues for decades. So I'm really glad that you sort of brought your experience and your expertise to this really fraught and challenging problem. So I I just think it's, I want to congratulate you. I just think it's just been a tremendous contribution. And I really wanted to have you on because I just thought this is really important. And I think it's important that people go out and read this report because I think it's a very important contribution. Dan, I appreciate the opportunity to share insights with your audience. We put our heart and soul into this study. And we're happy that we can make some modest contributions to solving this problem. I hope you'll come back. I hope your your colleagues will come back. Keep us posted. I think this is the sort of report that deserves reading in Washington and in the region. I also think there are other stakeholders ought to be reading this. It's the private sector actors, the multilateral development banks. It's It's really quite welcome and really well done. Thank you, Sam. 
If you enjoyed this podcast, check out our larger suite of CSIS podcasts from Into Africa, The Asia Chessboard, China Power, AIDS 2020, The Trade Guys, Smart Women, Smart Power, and more. You can listen to them all on major streaming platforms like iTunes and Spotify. Visit csis.org slash podcasts to see our full catalog 